Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Scores of heads of government and other senior ministers and hundreds of CEOs of some of the world's biggest companies and the director of the FBI, just to put a tin hat on it, are all in Davos. Let's hope Putin doesn't land one of his hypersonic super intercontinental ballistic missiles on top of them. What a disaster tragedy that would be. Are they there for good or for evil? You decide on the Twitter and the YouTube and Telegram poll that we are running now, and it's not going very well for Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. Self-appointed World Economic Forum, but for some odd reason. If you're anybody at all in what they call the West, you've got to be in Davos. Of course, it costs $50,000 to attend, even to sit in the stalls. And you'd have to have the price of a few magnums of crystal if you were hoping to gather anyone around you to get the benefit of your wisdom on contemporary events. But in all seriousness, should we really have such shadow world government going on, absolutely lacking in transparency, opaque, with no members of the public able to see or hear what they are deciding, at least until later when the governments of the Western world invariably begin to implement the policies that were decided upon or at least discussed in detail at Davos. So who's the real ruler of the world? Who is Klaus Schwab anyway? Well, I know his father was a Nazi military officer, and I know he has a strange taste in garb, dressing up like Count Dracula, as well he might. But I know little else of him. Maybe Max Blumenthal can enlighten us on what they're going to be up to in Davos. It was, too, a pretty little Corvette that Joe Biden had in his garage. Unfortunately for him, somebody has decided to release to the public that which they knew weeks before the midterm elections in November of 2022, namely that Joe Biden has been inadvertently misplacing to use his own words, super secret, highly secret, top secret, confidential American government papers that he had no right even to have seen, let alone have possession of, still less to keep in his garage with his 
Corvette. Now, the uh, hypocrisy will not be lost on many viewers. The campaign in November of the Democrats was partly centered on the fact that Donald Trump was supposed to have committed the supposedly heinous offense of removing his own presidential documents. Joe Biden's documents were not his. They were President Obama's. Many of them he had no right even to have sight of, let alone possession, let alone take them home like a Chinese takeaway. No, but Donald Trump's possession of documents was sufficient for the FBI to practically smash his door down in Mar-a-Lago in Miami, Florida. Not only that, the officers then roamed around his wife's bedroom, fingering her lingerie. I'm not making that up, but no such thing has happened to Joe Biden. I appreciate that his lingerie is a little less tasteful than Melania Trump. I don't want to go, go too far down that. I'm being told in my ear not to go too far down that line. But there was no FBI raid on Joe Biden. And in fact, the FBI covered up the, the uh, exposure of this illegal possession and reckless misplacing of top secret American government uh, material uh, to avoid upsetting the vo voters, uh, frightening the horses in advance of the midterm elections. But quite apart from that, we discovered that the documents were actually being stored in a garage which was in the possession of Mr. Biden's tenant. He was no longer living, of course, at the address in Delaware where these top secret, including military and strategic diplomatic secrets were being stored in a garage. So his tenant, we must hope, was a reliable patriotic fellow, one who could be guaranteed not to hand these documents into, I don't know, a computer repair shop or a second-hand store or throw them in a skip. We must be hopeful that the fellow that was renting Mr. Biden's Delaware home was a pucker fellow of the right sort. And then we discovered the identity of Mr. Biden's tenant. We discovered that from his driving license, which gave as his address, the very address where the top secret documents were stashed. Who was that tenant? You've guessed it. No less than Hunter Biden himself, a crackhead, user of young prostitutes, a man who took pictures of himself, weighing the crack cocaine and complaining that it was a gram or two light for the money he had paid for it. A man of such reputation that he was drummed out of the U.S. military for dishonorable conduct. Too dishonorable to be in the U.S. military, 
but reliable enough to have custody of the American government's innermost secrets in the garage in which Joe Biden's pretty little silver Corvette was stored. But here's another peculiar thing. It turns out that Hunter Biden pays rent for his father's house. I don't know about you, I'm a father of six children. It would never occur to me that I could charge my children rent. But if I did, maybe I would set the rent. I I don't know, a figure that might cover the mortgage, though Joe Biden, of course, long ago ceased to have a mortgage on the property. I might set the rent at the utility bill level, say, to cover the electric, the water, the gas. Do you know what Hunter Biden's rent was for his father's house? $50,000 a month. That's $600,000 a year. That's a bit pricey, isn't it, for any rent? Never mind the rent you're paying to your father leaving open the question of whether this was some scam of some kind. Was Hunter Biden laying off this rent on somebody else, on a company, for example? Was it uh, being charged to expenses, for example, and instead of giving it to his father, he was putting it in his pocket for prostitutes and crack cocaine? Or was this one of the ways that the big guy got his 10%? Whoever the big guy is, of course, it's not yet entirely clear, but we know from Hunter Biden's laptop that there was a big guy in the picture who had to get 10% in this picture. Maybe one of the ways that the big guy was collecting his 10% from the corrupt business practices of the Biden crime family was through this apparently grotesquely inflated figure of rental income. Curiouser and curiouser. But the papers keep on turning up just five minutes before I sat down here this evening. Biden's officials have admitted to a fifth tranche of top secret documents that Joe Biden had no right to possess, let alone to have in his property. So I got to wondering, because I'm suspicious now, calamity has hardened me and turned my mind to steel, you see, and My steely mind is now turning to the possibility that all this material is being dumped on Joe Biden now that the midterms are passed and just in time to get rid of Joe Biden. Just in time for the men in gray suits in the CIA and the FBI to turn up and say, sorry, Joe, your time is up. You are no longer worth it. Your debits outweigh your credits in the great balance sheet of American presidential politics. You know how it is, Joe? 
You're wandering around on stage lost. You try to walk off the end of a pier in England. You're soiling yourself in front of His Holiness the Pope in the Vatican. Your trips to the lavatory in the West Wing are now so dangerous we're afraid that as you rush to the toilet, you trip over the nuclear football and somehow send the world up in radioactive smoke. So now that these unhelpful documents have started turning up everywhere, it's time for you to shuffle off the stage. And shuffle would be the appropriate word. I'm wondering if we're going to see, and perhaps much sooner than any of us expected, President Kamala Harris. Now, of course, she will not suffer the same problems because she doesn't read anything. I doubt if she can read anything. In parenthesis, let me wonder aloud and anew that Joe Biden, who never wrote a word of his own material in his life, he even plagiarized Neil Kinnock, and it doesn't get much lower than that, actually had a think tank. Joe Biden's think tank. Oxymoron, anyone? But Kamala Harris is, if anything, even more stupid than Joe Biden. And she may very well be the next president of the so-called Western world. She'll talk and laugh a lot on television, laugh inappropriately often, laugh inexplicably often. And she's a more comely face, if that's not a sexist observation, than the gerontocratic uh, Joe Biden. But she's intellectually challenged and doesn't even have the excuse of being 90 years old as Joe Biden increasingly appears to be. Now, only a couple of minutes left to turn to the other big issue. I did a television program for a Middle East station I worked for, Al Mayadeen Television, yesterday. And we were discussing the impact of the economic war launched against Russia by North American and Western European countries, European countries in general. We discovered in the course of the show that not only is the ruble the best performing currency of 2022, it has started 2023 with a bang, and the US dollar has fallen below 70 for the first time in many years in relation to the ruble. We discovered that Russia's external debt has fallen in the last 12 months, not risen. And that can be compared to the United States level of indebtedness, which the last time I looked was 300 trillion US dollars. A very great deal of it owed to China which is the biggest creditor of the United States and its economy, its Ponzi scheme economy. Not only that, Slovenia increased its imports from Russia of 
makes you wonder what Slovenia has done with all those Russian imports. Last time I looked, Slovenia was a very small place with a very small population. I don't know, maybe they're selling them on somewhere. Germany has increased its imports from Russia by 49%. The Russian economy is booming as the German, French, Dutch, European, British economies are collapsing in this bleak midwinter. But then we turned from the economic war, which undoubtedly represents a gigantic stone which we have struggled to lift only to drop on our own feet, we turned to the actual war on the ground. Do you remember, it's not that long ago, when they were telling you Ukraine was winning the war? You remember that? You remember when every television station and newspaper in this land, and I assume in your land, was telling you that Ukraine was winning the war, they can't even any longer to the most credulous, even to the reader of the National Enquirer, peddle that line anymore. Yesterday was the heaviest bombardment of Russian missiles on Ukrainian cities of the whole war. Russia's 600,000 reinforcements are now lined up in a big line which can advance either at any particular point or points or all of it together. Now that they have taken Solidar and now according to the Washington Post, Ukraine is about to evacuate from Bakhmut with its shells telling us it's of no military significance when eight months ago they told us the fight was so vital because of its immense strategic defense importance. Now that the encirclement and kettling of army after army of the Ukrainian armed forces in the eastern part of Ukraine is now throttling the very life out of Poor Ukrainian soldiers who are now surrendering in large numbers and those who don't, alas, are dying in large numbers whilst their president cavorts online with his Hollywood pals at the Golden Globes. The war has turned disastrously against NATO, a private military company, Wagner, not even the Russian armed forces, a group of Russian mercenaries liberated Solidar from the NATO armies. And we keep getting treated to news flashes. Germany is giving leopard tanks. And then it turns out the tanks will not be arriving until 2024, when the war will be over. Challenger tanks, but only 12 of them in a country of 600,000 square miles across a front which stretches from the Black Sea to the Baltic. This 
war is being lost now at a catastrophic rate for NATO, which has depleted virtually its entire inventory of munitions and weapons that it requires for its own defense. I've joked here before, if Russia wanted to keep the tanks rolling, they could reach Berlin and nobody would be able to stop them because all the equipment has been given to Ukraine and destroyed except where it ends up on the black market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think something like 10,000 people have voted already. Is the WEF gathering at Davos A, good, 7%, B, evil, 93%, and no different, actually. In fact, worse on YouTube, yes, 4%. It's a force for good, no, a force for evil, 96%. And on Telegram, exactly the same result, 4 and 96. Way to go, Klaus Schwab and the other potentates arriving in their private jets at Davos. Now, uh, Max Blumenthal of the Grey Zone and uh, many other platforms is going to be addressing the No to NATO, No to War rally on the 25th of February in central London. Uh, a new venue has been secured Bigger and better than the old one. It's the last laugh that counts, NAFO. Uh, Max is, uh, as I said, journalistic royalty. It's always a privilege to talk to him. And he joins us now from the United States. Max Blumenthal, welcome uh, to the mother of all talk shows. Can we start with that pretty little silver Corvette? As you know, I like cars and I especially like Corvettes. So when I saw that glistening silver Corvette, I could hardly take my eyes off it until I spotted a pile of highly classified American government secret documents sitting piled up in the garage behind it. How did that happen? Well, first of all, George, I'm looking forward to joining you at Wembley Stadium on the 25th. I guess that's not central London, but I'm looking forward to finding out where the new venue is and hope to see everyone there. We'll strategically release that information, Max. (laughs) Good. Yeah. Well, that will be more strategic than what (laughs) Biden has done. He said that everyone need not worry because these documents were in a locked garage. Well, Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago was raided 
by federal agents to spirit out classified documents. And we were told that this was a major national security threat and that any of the goons who visited Mar-a-Lago could have gained access to these documents that had details about nuclear discussions with Russia. Now, the investigation into Trump concerns his obstruction with relation to these documents, that his team did not want to give access to these documents. With Biden, what it looks like to me is that someone outside of Team Biden gained wind that there were classified documents stored all across Biden world, from Biden's residence in Wilmington, Delaware, to the Penn Biden Center, which is in Philadelphia and is basically a patronage farm for the Biden political network. And so they had to get out ahead of the story because his mishandling of documents was far more sloppy and catastrophic than Trump's. And remember, the American media went crazy over Trump's documents and the raid. And it was, you know, this anticipation that Trump was going to be arrested and he'd never be able to run for president. And now it doesn't look so good for the partisan defenders of Biden. But the question is, how many more documents will we see? Why are members of Team Biden with no security clearance the ones to look for these documents, how do they know where they are if they're in like eight different places? And what are they about? Because we know the documents at the Penn Biden Center relate to Ukraine. And we know that the Penn Biden Center at the time when these documents were brought there in 2018 was run by Michael Carpenter, who is Biden's personal Ukraine handler, who personally oversaw the construction of the post-Maidan junta, and who has been involved at every step of the way in laying the groundwork for this proxy war with Ukraine. So what do these documents concern? Well, I, I can see why Joe Biden would not want to leave behind the documentation which establishes uh, the uh, close, to not to put too fine a point on it, relationship between the Biden family business and the Ukrainian oligarchs, some of them in government now, some of them in government before, all of them still players on the Ukrainian uh, scene. And the, the money, you see, follow the money has been a rubric uh, ever since yeah. Deep Throat and Watergate. If you follow the money on Ukraine, you might get some answers to why the United States is taking the world to the brink of world war over Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's the issue. So I think that it's pretty fair to say that this was not an accident. That's the Biden line. I don't know what the content of the documents is. So this is pure speculation. But we do know that Biden's son was on the board of Burisma, was heavily involved also with Metabiota, with his business partner, Devin Archer. Uh, in uh, a private firm that seemed to be involved in some kind of shady biowarfare programs in Ukraine. We know that Biden's first visit to Kiev was in February 2015, and he went there specifically to ask the IMF to start providing loans to Ukraine and start the entire austerity program. All of these loans went into the hands of oligarchs like Kolomoisky, who's Zelensky's biggest backer and the backer of the Azov Battalion. We know that Joe Biden fired the special prosecutor who is looking into his son's shady dealings. And we also know that Michael Carpenter, who is the head of the of the Penn Biden Center, where many of these documents concerning Ukraine were found, was on stage with Joe Biden sitting right next to him at the Council on Foreign Relations when Biden boasted 
of firing that special prosecutor, Victor Shokin. So Biden is heavily invested in and you could even say mobbed up with this corrupt post-Maidan regime. And to the extent that he has documents that relate to Ukraine, classified documents as personal residence at the Penn Biden Center, we need to know what the contents are because we need to know if there is some kind of cover up at play. So do you think uh, I'm uh, wrong then in imagining that the Democrats have turned on Biden, that these things have been leaked as a prelude uh, to pushing him off the stage? metaphorically uh, speaking. Uh, you think that these, uh, the, the, this news was rushed out because it might have emerged from more hostile sources. Well, that's one theory inside the Beltway right now, is that the, the Democrats and you know the regime, the permanent bureaucracy that comprises what people refer to as the deep state, elements of the national security state, uh, but also you know Democratic Party elites want to get rid of Biden because the rumor in town is that Biden is determined to run again in 2024. He doesn't seem to be very mentally competent. He's not the most popular president. But behind him, who do we have? Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who's presiding over some of the worst delays and cancellations we've ever seen on flights in the U.S. He's becoming a hated figure. He was being put up as a successor to Biden. And then Kamala Harris, as you mentioned, George, who doesn't seem to be very mentally competent either, even though she's not as advanced in the years as Biden. She won absolutely zero delegates in the Democratic 2020 primary. She was extremely unpopular, even among black voters, historically unpopular for a black candidate. So I don't really see her as a successor. The Democrats are in terrible situation. So I don't see why, or in a difficult situation. So I don't see why they would uh, deliberately cripple their most nationally known figure, the president. I think this has more to do with team Biden trying to limit the inevitable damage on a much more uh, problematic situation than we even understand right now. Now, I may be naive. I don't know American prices, uh, but uh, $50,000 a month rent uh, when your landlord is your own father uh, struck me as uh, particularly odd. As a father, I can't imagine charging my children for living at my house, let alone charging them a rent that a prince would pay for a property, especially in Delaware. I mean, I don't know Delaware, yeah. <laughs> but it's not, I mean, it's, it's not Beverly Hills. Yeah. Well, I mean... Joe Biden has said his son did absolutely nothing wrong. And there's he's 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 flown on Air Force One. He's still part of part of the picture of the Biden network. The House Republicans won enough seats to initiate an investigation on the laptop and everything else. This is going to become a major campaign issue. So I, I do see an impetus for pushing Biden aside. I don't know if this is it, but. The relationship with Hunter Biden and the corruption, him asking for 70 or $80,000 while he was on a, a crack-fueled prostitute spree is a pretty good uh, – it, it's, it's almost like a, a, a microcosm of the whole Ukraine proxy war, where, as Hillary Clinton has said, all of the aid that we're sending to Ukraine is an investment in ourselves. She said that last month. 
so, sort of a, a, a boast about corruption and money laundering because we're sending raking money from the pockets of U.S. taxpayers who are hurting like never before uh, on the dawn on the at the at the precipice of a recession and it's sending it to Ukraine. It's being washed through Ukrainian warlords and oligarchs. We don't know where it's going. Congress refuses an audit and it's coming back to the Beltway bandits, Deloitte, uh, Booz Allen Hamilton, you know, the private spies, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon. And then they're pumping money into the pockets of members of Congress to continue voting for the aid. It's the most corrupt situation, very reminiscent of Afghanistan. And it sort of goes, it all goes back to what took place when Biden became the imperial vice lord of the post-Maidan junta in 2015. Now you conducted uh, a, a wonderful conversation with Matt Tybee, the, the lead writer on the Twitter files. I urge everyone to see it, but for our audience, Max, in summary, what did you make of Tybee's take on what's been going on at Twitter? Thanks for, for pointing people to that discussion. I really benefited from it. There were things I did not know that Matt divulged. Uh, I thought one of the biggest takeaways was Matt's opinion that Elon Musk may have bought Twitter specifically to do this, to essentially burn down the state censorship regime that's been erected, especially since Russiagate, to put pressure on social media companies and the media itself to push these new Cold War narratives and to basically censor anyone who dissents or who dissented from the uh, biomedical security state that was being erected under the uh, uh, behind the under the rubric of COVID restrictions. So we've learned a lot from these leaks. And what we talked with Matt about was specifically how the leaks that he's obtained have exposed how the plague of Russian bots which we were told influenced the outcome of the 2016 election and then interfered in the process of American democracy and American society itself to pit us against each other and polarize American society was a complete fabrication of the House and Senate intelligence committees, which were run by the Democrats and heavily influenced by the CIA. And that Twitter was placed under so much pressure through those intelligence committees and the corporate media, which was breathing down their neck. And even though Twitter knew there were no real Russian bots, the whole thing was fake. They refused to say so in public because of their fear of being hammered in the media. And so the problem festered. And as we pointed out in this broadcast, when people are led to believe, millions of Americans are led to believe that Russia is interfering in their politics and that these bots are everywhere and that anyone they could be talking to online could be a Russian bot, that Russians are even planning protests through Facebook. They start to hate Russia. And so what took place was greasing the skids for the Ukraine proxy war, which so many Americans initially reflexively supported without thinking about the context behind it. So this was a dangerous process. And it's so important that Matt and other reporters exposed it. And, you know, another thing we discussed, George, was how did how he got these leaks? Essentially, he and others were chosen by Elon Musk. They go to Twitter headquarters and they ask, they put in requests for specific hashtags and topics, and then they collate the documents that they receive. And Matt said that they are not well liked inside Twitter headquarters, that many of the employees and the people, you know, executives who may be left over are not particularly happy about this. Um, it's not making it's not good for Twitter's brand, but it's good for whatever's left of democracy. It's good for transparency. And so I support what they're doing. 
You correctly in that conversation and in other places too have identified the Russia Gate hoax as being, uh, in a way, the original sin. Of course, there have been many more sins before that, but the original sin of this era, which has yeah. now put us on the precipice. Uh, Scott Ritter, uh, in very dramatic uh, language, uh, talking of death on a pale horse riding towards us, the possibility of nuclear Armageddon. This, the germ of all this was located, wasn't it, in the, in what now even its best friends would have to accept was a complete hoax. There was no Russian interference in the American elections. There was American state interference in the American elections right up until the midterms where they covered up these, um, these uh, confidential secret documents uh, inadvertently mislaid by Joe Biden. As uh, Edward Snowden said, I wish I'd thought of that excuse. This Russiagate hoax, it's hard to overstate or exaggerate how important that has been in bringing the whole world to this point, isn't it? It was Russiagate was a concoction of a coalition of Clintonite dead-enders who wanted to explain away the defeat of their candidate who believed she was deigned to become Queen of America in 2016. And Cold War-minded spooks like John Brennan. And, you know, it had a double-edged effect, therefore. First, it convinced many Americans, especially Democrats, partisan Democrats, that Trump only one because of assistance from Russia. And so the party that had always had traditionally some wing of opponents of uh, Reagan's Cold War, for example, during Iran-Contra, became the Cold War party almost instantly. And then the new Cold Warriors, the spooks and the neocons, they gained control over that party and over essentially the media. And there was no resistance any longer to pushing for, for example, off sending offensive lethal weaponry to Ukraine and setting the stage for the proxy war, which as we know by comments from Angela Merkel and others, a Marine general named uh, James Bierman said last week that this war was always inevitable, that it was planned for ever since the 2014 Maidan coup. And so you can just look at the chronology of events. I mean, starting from the end of the Cold War and the end of the Soviet Union, but moving forward from 2014. I mean, 2014 was the real fulcrum point when a nationalist oligarchic pro-NATO regime was installed through violence and US meddling in Kiev and everything from there that followed made something like Russia Gate inevitable. And anything Trump did, many much of what he did was also what Obama did, for example, refusing to send offensive lethal weaponry to Ukraine was portrayed as something influenced by Putin. And so what Russia Gate did was it criminalized diplomacy with Russia, as the late great Stephen Cohen put it. So we're now at a point where it's unclear how any channel of communication can be restored with Russia to prevent us from going to the precipice of nuclear war. And any attempt to challenge this mad push 
for endless escalation with Russia and Washington, and I experience this all the time, my colleagues experience this all the time, is portrayed as some, you're, you're portrayed as a Kremlin shill. I mean, we saw a representative, a member of Congress, Ted Lieu, accused Matt Taibbi of being, of mouthing Kremlin talking points simply for exposing these Twitter leaks. So that's how Washington is now. McCarthyism is on overdrive. Negotiations have been criminalized and we're marching to the brink thanks to this Russiagate hoax. And that's really why I challenged it in the first place instantly when it emerged. Indeed you did. Uh, lastly, and I'm grateful for your time as always, Max. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Where does all this leave Trump? Is he dead political meat? Or could he make a comeback in the light of all these new developments we've been discussing? Well, no candidate in U.S. politics, national politics right now, has the constituency Trump has. Nor do they have the name recognition, the brand, or the kind of uh, organic political network that gives them the ability to turn on the switch in swing states and compete. But you can see that Trump is being challenged internally from within the Republican Party for the first time. And it's not by a typical corporate Republican candidate who would be portrayed as a rhino or Republican in name only by Trump supporters. It's Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who stood up against the COVID restrictions, won a lot of support, um, especially he made him a national right wing hero. And, you know, he's he's branded himself as sort of the anti-woke governor. He's taken on critical race theory and all of these this identity politics. But he has a background as a lawyer for the U.S. military who participated in the torture of detainees at Guantanamo Bay. And everything in Ron DeSantis' record going back to his time in Congress as a member of the Freedom Caucus in the House, the kind of right-wing Freedom Caucus, shows that he doesn't differ much from someone like Mike Pompeo on foreign policy. And so I think he's a lot less threatening to the national security state than Donald Trump is. Donald Trump, who went to Korea to meet with Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump, who attempted to have a summit with Putin and negotiate several treaties on intermediate ballistic missiles, for example. Uh, Trump, who actually referred to Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela as a tough leader who's probably going to stay, referred to him as president in the middle of this coup attempt. Donald Trump did so many things that upset the national security state. And Ron DeSantis seems like a more steady, if actually more aggressive hand. And so you can even see centrist Democrats uh, egging DeSantis on to run. And so I think we're going to see Trump challenge in a way he hasn't been before, and you can see Trump's base fracturing slightly right now. Max Blumenthal, see you on the 25th of February. Looking forward to your speech. Thanks for joining us tonight on the Me mother too. of Thanks all talk you. shows. Welcome. God bless you. Is the WF gathering at Davos A good, B evil? <laughs> it is overwhelming. Thousands upon thousands of you are voting. You can vote on Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Just search my name, George Galloway. To the phone lines, it's Rob in Southend up first. Go ahead, Rob. Rob, you're on, you're on air to the whole world. Well, what do you want me to say? Rob, 
Rob. Don't have a domestic now because the whole world is listening. Uh, let's go to Lance in Canada whilst we uh, sort out Rob in Southend. Lance, welcome back to the show, my friend. I think it uh, must be uh, been more important what Rob's partner says to him than George Galloway. So that means he's a good man. <laughs> But anyway, um, exactly. yeah, <laughs> just kidding. I want to say thanks for, uh, you know, your, your continued uh, decency. And uh, I guess my overall opinion of the world is there's an old saying, the rising tide raises all boats. And I do believe that if your sort of globalist didn't operate in just angst and they actually just sort of let the whole place develop, I think we could do pretty well for ourselves in the future. Uh, but that wasn't my question. Uh, my question was... Um, is Turkey, is there a chance or how far out or is it a remote possibility that Turkey will actually pivot and go the other way? I mean, there's an, I mean, it is very hard to pivot your whole society and markets away from things. And, and it's a rough ride, but I don't know. I mean, obviously Russia has all the resources and uh, a lot of, well, we'll have a lot of clout if they win here. So, yeah. I don't know. Well, I think, Lance, that uh, the tectonic plates have visibly shifted, audibly shifted. People know who's up, who's down in the world. People can read the runes. Even the kings of Arabia have uh, come to that conclusion. So it would be surprising if as wily an old fox as, uh, as Erdogan uh, had not noticed those tectonic plates shifting. So... Uh, in, in, in the words of Groucho Marx, I think when the facts change, so do my opinions. And uh, I think the facts have changed, and so Erdogan's opinions are changing with it. Biden's not uh, going quietly, though. He's just uh, offered uh, Turkey a $20 billion uh, military procurement deal that the U.S. has been delaying on for a long time for fighter jets. Uh, and that was, as far as I can see, not conditional on uh, Turkey not buying Russian anti-aircraft missiles, the S-300s, having already bought the S-200s. Uh, and in the past, that was holding up the supply of U.S. fighter jets to the Turkish Air Force. The U.S. Uh, harbors the main opposition to Erdogan uh, in Langley, Virginia. I mean, they're not hiding it. It's not as if he's been given somewhere neutral to live. He's actually living in Langley, Virginia, and uh, he mounted a coup against Erdogan not that long ago, uh, three, four years ago now, which uh, came closer than many people think to toppling Erdogan, certainly killing Erdogan. Uh, so uh, I think Erdogan is turning. I think his reconciliation publicly with uh, President Assad of Syria cannot be much longer delayed. That will be a big blow to American prestige in the area, especially as American forces continue to illegally occupy a part of Syria and steal, literally steal its oil using Kurdish forces to... Uh, to truck that stolen oil out of the country. And no one quite knows where the profits from that are going. Are they going to the Kurds? Are they going to the big guy? Who knows 
where that money is uh, going. Uh, so I think uh, that Turkey will shift. Uh, whether it will entirely shift is, of course, another matter. Thank you so much, Lance. We haven't got back to South End where uh, some domestic difference was discernible. When we did get through, we'll hear. Uh, Robert P. on YouTube says, how many more families need to receive the news that their husbands, fathers, grandfathers, and sons won't be coming home? May monsters responsible for this war burn in hell. And the happy little fox, a.k.a. Benji, says those who seek Russia's defeat on the battlefield probably had a poor education, don't know history very well, and do not understand what Russia is. That's a quote from Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia. Tanya Keen says, a hundred planes have arrived in Davos. A hundred. And one of them flew only 27 kilometers. You'd think he would have just driven in the Escalade. Schlaff uh, Commandante says there are 5,000 Swiss soldiers protecting Klaus Schwab and the WEF meeting. 5,000 soldiers. Captain Blimp says these are exactly the people that the world could do without. If they went, millions of lives could be saved. Rob is back. The domestic is over. And he's here with us from South End. Rob, welcome. Hi, George. Yes, mate. What would you like to say? Well, I don't know about the domestic. Well, there was a bit of to and fro in the house going on when we were trying to talk to you. My wife is a nurse, and I've uh, just decorated the uh, downstairs hall, and uh, there was a lot of issues about cats and things, but that was, was it. She, was, was she complaining you hadn't finished the job or that the job wasn't up to scratch or what? <laughs> uh, no, it was done. It was all finished. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I'll, have to get, uh, I'll have to get mine done when I go home. My, my, my wife will have taken uh, encouragement from that. Go ahead, Rob. Uh, no, I was um, just thinking about what you said. I think it was about two weeks ago about you saying that uh, Russia could go through Poland, uh, Paris, and then, uh, sorry, uh, through Berlin and into Paris. Uh, yeah. Do you really believe that they have the capability to do that? Well, uh, I think the point I was making was that we no longer have enough military equipment, hardware and ammunition to stop them. Luckily, they have no wish whatsoever to occupy London, which has descended into a kind of a vortex, a kind of hell on earth. Nobody in their right mind would want to come and occupy London, where you're scared to go to a funeral for fear of being shot in a drive-by. Uh, so it's quite lucky for us that Russia has no intention or wish to drive on all the way to Berlin, Paris, and London. But if they did want to, we no longer have enough on our shelves to stop them. That was the point I was making, Rob. Oh, right, okay, that's fine. No, I, I, I just wondered where that was going, because I just thought, I don't think they would, and I don't think they could. Uh, but there you go, that, that, that's just what I was thinking. And, yeah. uh, but yeah, luckily, well, luckily they don't want to. Uh, they, they, they've got more than enough on their plate. 
making their own country great again. Rob, thanks for the call. Uh, Johnny Enough says, Senator Maria Cantwell of my state is going there, to Ukraine, I presume, 7,000 kilometers away for reasons unknown. She's not a state senator, but a U.S. senator. And Alpaca My Bag, that's a good name, Alpaca My Bag, says, George, I love it. You've got the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost all on tonight. Thank you uh, for that, Steve. Madeline Swords says, uh, stop the war and fix the pipeline and stop paying inflated utility bills. Why are we buying gas from the USA at four times the price? As my kids would say, dunno. Now, Gonzalo Lira is actually under bombardment. The building next to him was hit just yesterday. As I understand it, on another broadcast earlier today, he disappeared halfway through because all his lights went out. It is extraordinary that this man has the clarity and the courage to continue to tell the truth about what's happening in Ukraine. He's in Kharkov, but he joins you now for the global audience that loves to see him so much. Gonzalo, uh, the fall of Solidar, the potential now evacuation uh, of Bakhmut, the extraordinary bombardment of virtually every important Ukrainian city over the last 48 hours. The war has begun to turn big time, hasn't it? Uh, yes, it most certainly has. And first of all, thank you so much for having me on. And thank you so much for your very, very kind words. You know that I'm a huge fan of yours. And I will always thank you for, uh, you know, paying attention to me and looking after me and, and that unpleasantness back in April. Uh, no, and, and in fact, you mentioned that uh, the building next to mine had been struck. It wasn't yesterday. It was uh, uh, back in early September when the missile strikes ha started happening. And so, yeah, I've got great photographs, but I can't show them because they give away my current location. But privately, I'm happy to send you the pictures because they're pretty cool. Anyway, the point is, um, yeah, what's going on now in the in the front in the Donbass region is that you see, uh, since the start of this war, the uh, the Kiev regime installed basically three lines of defense. And the Russians have been grinding through them. Now, the first line of defense was uh, uh, Severodonetsk, Lysychansk, uh, Popasnaya, that line, which was breached in July 1st, I believe, of 2022. And here, they, uh, now the Russians are, have been grinding through the second line of defense, which is the Bakhmut line. And Solodar is a, uh, essentially a suburb. It's a separate town, but basically a suburb of Bakhmut. It's a city or town of 10,000 people before the start of this conflict. And it mattered because, you see, uh, uh, this line of Bakhmut-Solidar, uh, north-south line, basically was the second um, and perhaps the strongest line of defense that the Kiev regime had installed. They'd been building these defenses for the past seven, eight years since uh, the signing of Minsk II agreements. And so, the, the, the capture of Solidar is a very important moment. It's basically the penultimate town of the penultimate defensive line. You see, once they uh, captured Solidar, they have essentially encircled the city of Bakhmut. There's only one road of escape for Bakhmut. And um, 
what the Zelensky regime is doing is that they are actually trying to hold on to Bakhmut by pouring more troops into it, which is incredibly demoralizing because the troops realize that they're going into certain death. And so, you know, they're just throwing away lives willy-nilly. Um, people, a lot of people are saying in the West that Solidar and Bakhmut don't matter. They do. They do enormously. Because, you see, this was the center, the centerpiece of the defensive line to hold back any Russian onslaught. And once your defensive lines are fully breached, there's nothing holding them back. Okay, And furthermore, the city of Bakhmud is a very important uh, transportation hub. Several highways and several train lines cross through it. And so that's why, <coughs> excuse me, it was a centerpiece of the second defensive line of the uh, Kiev regime. Now, after they, uh, the Russians finally breach through this second line, once they have captured Bakhmud, which will not be tomorrow, it'll take uh, a few days, if perhaps not even a couple of weeks, but once they finally do capture it, the only further line, the third defensive line, is on the city of Kramatorsk. But this third line is the weakest of the lines. And beyond that, once they have overrun Kramatorsk, which would be inevitable because it's much easier to overrun it than the current Bakhmut line, then there's going to be basically clean, uh, clear sailing. I mean, just a, a flat terrain with no defensive positions between uh, Kramatorsk and the city of Dnepro, formerly Dnepropetrovsk, which is on the Dnepro River. This would essentially mean that the Russians would capture uh, the bulk of eastern Ukraine. This would be a huge deal. And the way things are going, this is an inevitability because Solara has been captured. Um, Bakhmut is about to be captured. It's encircled by three sides of the three roads leading out of it. Two of them are controlled by the Russians, either fire control or they have outright possession of the roads. So the, the forces in Bakhmut have only a single road out. It's not under fire control, but that it eventually will be under fire control. And so once Bakhmut falls... The next line will be Kramatorsk, which is far weaker than the Bakhmut line. And once they overrun that, once the Russians overrun that line, then that would be the ballgame insofar as eastern Ukraine is concerned. And so there's a lot of speculation going on insofar as the offensives that are, that are, that are gaining, gaining pace, because it's clear that the Russians are preparing a big winter offensive, but nobody's quite sure where. At this time, it's credibly estimated that 650,000 uh, Russian soldiers are on the borders of Ukraine. A big grouping is in southern Belarus, just across the border from Ukraine, from the northern border, the northwestern border of Ukraine. Another big grouping is in the um, Belgorod uh, Oblast, which is literally uh, uh, 50 kilometers away from my position. And then there's the uh, third grouping that's in the Donbass region and the south of the country. It's sort of like spread out. It's not as concentrated as the others, other two. And so nobody's quite sure what the Russians have in mind. Of course, the Russians probably have a very clear idea of what they're about to do, but they're just not telling anybody. And there's, um, you know, operational security has been incredibly good. So nobody has any clue, any realistic idea of what the Russians are going to do next. But we are we have reached a, a key moment in this battle, in this war, rather. See, the, the breaching of the second line and the fact that Solar has fallen and Bakhmut is, is all but done, it's inevitable. There's no way to save it. No, no number of troops will save it because the defensive fortifications have already been destroyed. And so even if more soldiers flood into it, they will not be in positions to defend themselves from the Russian onslaught. So Bakhmut is done. Okay, it's just a matter of time. 
And so from, from that perspective, you realize that we, we have tipped over insofar as the conflict and, uh, in its totality is concerned. Because if we think of the conflict starting on February 24th, as initially it was an expeditionary force that the Russians launched to essentially scare the Zelensky regime into negotiations. And that failed into the spring. And so in the summer, they reorganized and they started really in September for this grinding, constant offensive. Well, we're seeing the culmination of that grinding offensive that has just ground down the Ukrainian armed forces And so now we're at the position where the Russians will achieve some sort of breakthrough. Now, how this plays out exactly, like I said, nobody knows. But this is the time to start paying very close attention to what things are going uh, to the things that are going on. Yeah. uh, The Washington Post today uh, speculates uh, from Mm -hmm. informed sources, they say, uh, that Zelensky will relent to uh, the head of the Ukrainian Armed Forces demand that uh, there should be a withdrawal from Bakhmut uh, rather than wasting more men and more material uh, in the in the city. As you say, there's still one road out if they wanted to take it. And on your point yeah. about the, uh, the, the uh, Russian offensive, the winter offensive that is obviously coming somewhere. The British Security Service, MI6, uh, two days ago or three days ago, uh, warned everyone that in the next couple of weeks, this offensive was going to be launched. But as you say, nobody seems to know uh, where. Um, now, I'm tantalized by the Belarus buildup. Because, of yeah. course, <laughs> it's a, a crossing uh, from Belarusia would have bring Belarus into the war proper for a start, but would, uh, would run the risk of confrontation with Polish forces that might very well enter uh, the west of the country. As, as you know better than me, uh, Poland regards much of western Ukraine as actually being theirs in any case. I wonder if you think a movement across the Belarusian border is A, uh, a real possibility, and B, what would its consequence be? Okay, that's a very good good question. Now, uh, is it possible? Certainly. I mean, you do have to keep in mind that the Russians, when they position troops wherever, and this is true for every military, whenever they position uh, troops anywhere, they have multiple possibilities of where to put those forces and what to do with them. They might put some... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Troops there just as a holding uh, mission to hold to pin down some opposing army, or they might put them there to attack 
or they could just put them there and have both plans ready to roll, whatever circumstances dictate what's most favorable. Now, insofar as um, uh, Russia attacking from Belarus, which would, of course, bring in Belarus into this conflict, and the Poles. Okay, so we have multiple problems going on with Poles. Recently, uh, President Duda of Poland was in Lviv, and he was received like a rock star. Like, uh, you know, like a celebrity. And, and you have to keep in mind the city of Lviv in Western Ukraine is historically Polish. It's barely, um, I want to say something like 60 or 80 kilometers from the border. I actually rode that road from the border of Poland and Ukraine to the city of Lviv on my motorcycle. But I, I forgot. But it's something like that. It's, it's not far, is my point. And so the issue becomes, you know, will the Poles decide to put troops on the ground and take what they consider to be historically Polish territory. Because the city of Lviv and, and that area, geographic area, uh, you know, they, they, Galicia, they consider it theirs. Part of Galicia also extends into what is southwestern uh, Belarus as well. And so will they go into it? Now, it's not clear if they have the troops to do that. Um, I, I, I'm frozen. I don't know if you guys can see me. Yes, we can. Uh, yes. The, okay, great. Uh, what happens is that the, um, the, the Poles, at this time, they have an army of 150,000 men. I mean, that, that's the Polish army today. But what has happened is that uh, as of November, they uh, did a call-up of 200,000 men. These were, you know, untrained men who are going to have to be trained. And so that'll take a good minimum six months, closer to nine months to a year. But clearly, the, the Poles are getting ready for some conflict. I mean, they wouldn't be calling up 200,000 men, i.e. more than their current armed force, unless they were preparing for war. They've also uh, gone forward with a lot of weapons purchases from the West, weapons that will be delivered into 2024 and 2025 and, and, and forward on. Tanks, uh, helicopters, artillery, especially because artillery is proving itself to be the god of war once again. And so uh, the Poles are clearly getting ready for some sort of uh, military uh, conflict. I mean, you don't invest that amount of money and time and effort into doubling your army unless you're very serious about getting something that you want, militarily speaking. So the issue will become for the Russians a, a very delicate political balance and a timing issue. See, on the one hand, they don't want to provoke the Poles, but on the other hand, they want to wrap this up before the Poles have an actual army that could cause problems for them. And when I say they want to wrap this up, I mean that they want to capture the entirety of Ukraine. You do have to keep in mind, if you have, as the Russians do, if you have an army of 650,000 men surrounding a country, which is what the Russians have at this point, 650,000 men is not for a war. 650,000 men is for the occupation of the entire country. I mean, that's clearly what that army is about. Okay, So the Russians probably already have a clear idea that what they have to do is they have to capture all of Ukraine before the Poles are in a position to do anything about it, militarily speaking. Because you do ha have to remember something that's key. The Russians no longer trust the West at all, especially with the revelations by Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande. Uh, Angela Merkel, the former chancellor of Germany, Francois Hollande, the former president of France, both of them were in power in 2015 when they negotiated the Minsk II agreements that were passed by the UN Security Council 
uh, which gave a pathway to peace in Ukraine insofar as the Donbass region is concerned. And both Hollande and Merkel have said in interviews, recent interviews, they have said that they had no intention of implementing those agreements and that they were just a way to buy time to arm Ukraine. Now, this has gone over in Russia like a lead balloon because they look at this and they say, oh, so any agreement we'd sign with these people will not be honored. And it's just a cynical ploy to rearm the Ukrainians. So therefore, we cannot negotiate with the West or much less with the Zelensky regime insofar as a ceasefire. We have to go for broke. We have to go and capture the whole country. I mean, that's what's happened because of these revelations that nobody in the Western media is talking about. The fact that Merkel and Hollande said that the Minsk II agreements were just a way to buy time and that they were signed in, in, in an insincere, practically fraudulent manner, that has gone over terribly with Russia. And the Kremlin in particular, they basically realize we cannot negotiate with them because any agreement we sign, any peace deal we sign, isn't going to be worth the paper it's printed on. So ultimately, we have to capture the whole country. I mean, it, it, this is a key point that people have to understand. The Russians are not going to negotiate. They're not going to stop. And for the Russians, since this is an existential crisis, they're going to put everything necessary to win. And the Russians, you know, they have a lot of flaws, like we all do. Uh, but, you know, I, I've said this before, you know, the, the Italians are, are great at food and the French are great at fashion. And, but the Russians, they're good at war and they're going to win this. And it's an inevitability. The only question for the Russians is they will have to accelerate the pace of this at some point to prevent the Poles from coming into Ukraine as they are clearly intending to do. Because this uh, tour by President Duda in Lviv and this buildup of military forces by the Poles, they're not doing it by chance or just for funsies. They're doing it because... They have their eye on Galicia or the, the Ukraine part of Galicia. They have their eye on the city of Lviv, which is, as, as I said, is an important historical city for the Poles. And so the Russians want to make sure that Poland does not get in. And so that's why I think that the Russians are going to have to accelerate this. I've read a number of commentators and very astute individuals, and many of them seem to be thinking that the Russians probably have as a timetable the 1st of September, to have this totally wrapped up. But this is pure speculation, so don't take this part to the bank. I mean, I just want to emphasize that. But yeah. it's reasonable. It's a reasonable speculation that the Russians will want to be done by the 1st of September to beat the Poles insofar as rearming and, and remanning their army. Because, like I said, the Poles have a, um, a current army of 150,000, and they are more than doubling it. It's 133%. That's the, the growth in this one call-up that they've done. And there seems to be even more call-ups in Poland in the pipes, in, in the legalistic uh, pipeline. Mm. And so we'll see what happens. But Poland is becoming an issue. And finally, and I'm sorry to bring this, you know, to keep on ranting, but there is another issue, too that the West and the Americans, they recognize that the Zelensky regime is, you know, it's falling apart militarily. So I have speculated on my own uh, YouTube channel, and, and I think that this is reasonable, and you will have to correct me if you think I'm wrong, 
But my thinking is that the Americans and NATO generally realize that the Zelensky regime militarily is no match for the Russians. And so they might be deliberately positioning the Poles as the next proxy to face the Russians and, you know, sacrifice the Poles on, on, on the, uh, the Russian anvil, if you will. And uh, I think that that might be in the cards, that the West is sort of like uh, the, uh, the Washington is egging on the Poles into this direction of direct conflict between Poland and Russia, probably as a kind of like a go it alone kind of thing, where it's just the Poles against the Russians and, and the Poles will not be able to, uh, to trigger Article 5. But something along these lines, they, it, it yeah. seems reasonable that they're trying to suck in Poland into this conflict because what the Americans want to avoid at all costs is that they want to avoid American lives, American boots on the ground. They want to avoid that at all costs. And so if they can get the Poles to fight the Russians for them, which is what they are doing with the Ukrainians, they are getting the Ukrainians to fight the Russians for them. You know, it's it's sort of like what these people are up to, the kind of uh, insincerity and despicable callousness that the people in the West, the NATO people, the Pentagon people, the State Department people, that's how they treat human lives because of their own petty little ambitions and their desire for more money and more resources. Well, look, uh, it's certainly the case that if you like the the core of the EU, uh, Germany, the, the Benelux, uh, France, Italy, to some extent, uh, are going to have to make a decision soon as to whether they're going to be dragged into a world war by these yapping little former Soviet republics and satellites uh, like the Baltic states uh, and like uh, satellite states like, uh, like Poland. Uh, who are gripped with a visceral hatred of of Russia, of the Soviet Union, and so on, feelings which don't really exist in uh, in Germany, France, Italy, Holland, Belgium, uh, etc. Et because we were getting along quite happily, uh, using Russian gas very cheaply, very dependably, and we were not seeking to refight. Uh, the the last years, the last decades before the collapse of the Soviet Union. But for people like these Baltic republics, people like the Poles, they have scores to settle uh, with Moscow. And the question for, if you like, the classic pillars of Europe, uh, like Germany and France, is are they going to be led? Is the tail going to wag the dog? Or is the dog going to wag the tail? We'll, we'll have to talk about that another time. But I wanted to ask you, finally, Gonzalo, um, there's a lot of uh, Ukrainians in exile, uh, usually the ones with the big BMWs. I had a run-in with some of them uh, just this very day. Uh, there's a lot of Poles, being, uh, Ukrainians, been killed. Uh, there's a lot of Ukrainians already in the army. There's a lot, as the mothers and wives were demonstrating in Kiev today, a lot of missing uh, Ukrainian service personnel who haven't been accounted for, are not admitted as dead. Um, but there's also now a draft, it's quite clear, 
from some of the pictures and video, a draft of very young children in Ukrainian yes. military uniform and very old men, yeah. even older than yeah. me in, uh, in uniform now, uh, in military roles. That seems to indicate a scraping of the barrel uh, by Zelensky. Is he running out of soldiers? Nobody really knows. But the fact that we've seen a lot of videos that indisputably proves that, you know, little boys of 16, 15 years old, uh, you know, wearing a military uniform and carrying a weapon. And we've also seen uh, older men. I mean, men who are clearly in their late 40s, 50s uh, killed. You know, I mean, we, we, I, I saw I've seen some videos of um, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine soldiers who are dead. And they've lost their helmets and, and they're bald like us older guys. I mean, we all get balder. And that, why do you think I wear a cap? You know, and, uh, you know, we, we all get bolder. And we can instantly tell, oh, that guy's older. That guy's in his 40s, you know. And, yeah, you were seeing a lot of that. And it's despicable. And, and, and nobody really knows the numbers because the um, Kiev regime is very, very cagey about the number of its losses. They have propagandized the people into thinking that the losses amount to, uh, you know, maybe 15, maybe 20,000 dead. But it's much, much more. I mean, the fact is Ursula von der Leyen let slip in her speech that um, at least 100,000 had been killed. And this was a month or so ago. But the actual number... Nobody really knows, but credible estimates of people who have been on top of the numbers and trying to get the numbers from different ways, they're saying that it's way above 125,000 killed. And uh, a lot of people are saying it's closer to 150,000 killed. And so far as wounded incapacitated, because there are wounded and, there are, and who can be patched up and sent back to the front. And then there are wounded who are just not going to go back. They've lost a limb or whatnot. You know, you're talking maybe 180 to 220,000 wounded incapacitated. So altogether, you're talking conservatively, you know, 320,000 men who are out of commission. Uh, that's extraordinary numbers we're talking about here. And it seems to be credible. And so far as the Russian losses, the BBC for a while was very carefully combing through all social media and all Russian news informations and outlets, trying to come up with credible estimates as to the Russian dead. And they stopped doing this back in uh, July, August, I believe, because the numbers they were getting were so low, it didn't fit their narrative. They were only estimating maybe, uh, you know, um, as, I think it was the uh, last number was seven, 8,000 men. And currently it's credibly estimated that the Russians, all Russian forces, Wagner PMC, the Chechen fighters, the DPR and LPR uh, militiamen, and the Russian army. They've lost maybe, killed in action, 20,000. So let's take the conservative figures, the, the ones that Ursula von der Leyen said, which is 100,000 killed uh, of the Kiev regime, and compare that to the outside number of the total Russian dead, which is 20,000. You're talking a ratio of five to one. Okay. And, and, the, the, the general in charge of the Ukraine armed forces, he said that they currently had, um, as of this was about two weeks ago, 10 days ago, he said that they currently had 200,000 men. He said this to the Wall Street Journal and The Economist, who, who did a round of uh, interviews with them, right? They had 200,000 men under arms. And the Russians, it is known that they have 600, 650,000 right now on, on the borders of Ukraine. So this is an attritional conflict. And ultimately, in an attritional war, 
What matters is who has the bigger numbers and who can inflict the greater losses. Mm. If the Russians are inflicting casualties at a rate of five to one, and on top of that, they have over three times the armed force that the Ukraine side has, then it becomes just an, an inevitability. It's, it's not something that, you know, the outcome is not in dispute. It's just a matter of how we will get to that outcome and what time frame. I mean, this war ended as a practical matter quite some time ago in the sense that we know who's going to win. You know, when you're playing some board game or something, you know, perhaps you're playing with your children like Monopoly or something, or you're playing chess with a friend. And there's that moment when you realize, oh, it's over. I lost. I mean, yeah, I can keep on playing, but the result, we know it. That moment has gone. I mean, it's obvious now. The inevitability of this conflict is obvious. But the cost that we we inflicted on these boys. I mean, we, you were talking about, you're, we're talking 15, 16 year old children. That's unconscionable. I mean, at least, you know, with the old men who are fighting, well, you know, they don't have that much life to, ahead of them, quite frankly. You know, I mean, it, it sounds callous, but, you know, at least there's that comfort. They lived their life and then they died in a war. Horrible. But some 16 year old child, they shouldn't be in, within 100 kilometers of any kind of combat like that. They're too young. They're babies, you know, because I've seen the videos. It's it's horrifying, you know, these, horrifying to see these children. And I'm sorry I'm getting No, no, it's getting sentimental, but you know what I mean? Uh, it's an emotional yeah. subject. Uh, Gonzalo Lira, as always, much obliged to you. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you again, I hope, before long. Thank you, Gonzalo Lira. Uh, is the WEF gathering at Davos A, good, B, evil? Have your say. Back to the lines, to Wisconsin, where it's Nick on the Biden documents. Go ahead, Nick. Uh, so I just wanted to bring up the whole Biden document situation. Um, I know you've probably talked about it earlier in the show, but I'd just like to see how this will be handled. Um, in Trump's case, you had the findings released within a month of when the raid happened and we don't even see a raid developing although documents have been found at three different locations from what we understand so how do you think the law will handle this i have a feeling that the even hand of justice might have a tremor in it well they have to take account of the fact that the republicans now control the house and uh i i, I carry no candle for the republican party but i'm working on the assumption they're not stupid and that they can see an open goal and uh, have enough sense to shoot the ball towards the goal. And I think Joe Biden's presidency is one giant open goal now. It's open season. There's an inquiry into the Hunter Biden laptop. There's an inquiry into uh, the relationship between the Biden crime family and the Ukraine. There's now these I understand it, five separate tranches of documents across three venues, and I've been concentrating on those piled up in the garage because I actually saw them with my own eyes uh, in a photograph. There's Hunter, there's the Corvette, and there is a pile of government yeah, it's really secrets. Incredible. Uh, truly it's incredible. It's incredible that, and I bet you every president does the same thing. You know, there's certain things that would be too easy to smear them with, you know, if they left that behind in the historical record. So, you know, it just goes to show that, you know, there's deeper interests at hand than partisan uh, views. 
Um, something else I'd like to bring up. Have you heard about this clown, George Santos? No. He is a candidate that was just elected in the Congress, and it turned out he lied about everything about his biography. Oh, yes, um, in Long Island, in Long Island. Absolutely, yeah, there's some... He, he just invented the whole persona, yeah. Absolutely, so it's just fascinating to see with this, you know, hurricane of money swirling around Washington, you know, not even the most basic opposition re uh, research is being formulated to take down opponents or to even really investigate who their opponents are. It's just simply amazing how inadequate these people are to serve us. Well, I think that's a very powerful point, Nick. Thanks for doing it. Uh, Dr. Doom is in San Diego, where he says there's a huge egg shortage. That wouldn't suit me. Doctor, welcome to the show. What would you like to tell us? Yes, thank you, George. It is truly an honor to be on this show with the likes of Gonzalo Lira, um, Max Blumenthal, and Garland Nixon. Uh, I want to thank you for having me on. I work for the second largest retailer in, within the United States. And upon myself leaving work today, I was asked by customers whether we had eggs. And we have a whole separate dairy cooler. It is a, a large refrigerated room wherein we receive two pallets a day worth of eggs. And upon uh, my inspection, uh, I, I was assured that we would have eggs. And I, it appeared we had none, none whatsoever. And I had read earlier uh, on mainstream media that um, even eggs at Walmart are $27. For twelve, more than a dollar. Uh, I, I knew the eggs had reached uh, had reached a dollar an egg. Yeah. Have they now have they now reached one and a half? I am not sure, but uh, upon googling uh, this information, um, it appears that they are um, blaming the egg shortage on the avian flu, a shortage of fertilizer, and a rising fuel costs. Well, um, at least they're not directly blaming it on Putin. Uh, we've got an egg shortage here also, uh, which is uh, a, a big problem. Uh, it's a little less uh, of a problem this month, but a month or two ago, I got sent to the shops many times for eggs and had to return empty-handed, which, if you're a married man, you'll know is never a good thing. Messages coming in on Patreon, remember you can subscribe and support me on Patreon. I hope you will. Uh, one of our Patreons, John G. Wilkinson, says, Devil advocates violence over salvation. Amen. Thank you, John. Paul Cormica says, Too right, John G., a bunch of devils, the lot of them anti-human beings, anti-Christs as well, worshipping mama above all else. And Raymond Barker says, how are the Ukraine going to replace the 120,000 men that have been lost? Indeed. So let's uh, uh, feature now the aforementioned Garland Nixon, always our go-to man in Washington. I don't know if he can solve the shortage of eggs uh, dilemma that was just brought up, but I know he's got trenchant points of view on that pretty little silver Corvette. Garland, welcome. Uh, anything on the eggs? Uh, for a start, uh, we just had uh, an interesting call by uh, Dr. Doom in San Diego who 
describes the ridiculous cost of eggs in the U.S. Well, you know, what, what's interesting about, you know, whether it's eggs or baby formula here in the United States is how quickly these things arise. I mean, if it's a form, if it's a, uh, you know, fuel or fertilizer or whatever the case may be, and I don't know how fertilizer affects eggs, but whatever the case, you would think that there would be a slow um, an increase in the, pro- in the, in the, uh, in the price of eggs rather than it happening overnight. And um, I suspect that the egg crisis will uh, maybe last for a while and go away. You know, sometimes these um, particular uh, stories come up at the same time that, say, Donald Trump's taxes, that story flopped, the Biden um, uh, the Biden uh, document comes out, and sometimes, you know, they give us an additional uh, something to talk about so that, you know, maybe we don't focus as much on some of the things that would be of much, of much greater consequence. Not that I'm not an egg aficionado. I love eggs and baked goods with eggs, but I just think maybe we have bigger, bigger fish to fry right now. Yes, well, a very interesting foodie metaphor, that one. Uh, now, Garland, um, I like a Corvette. Uh, I loved uh, the Corvette that the Biden crime family have got in their garage. But it's a truly hair-raising story, isn't it? That, that Hunter Biden is paying his own father $50,000 a month in rent What kind of father-son relationship is that? And what kind of a house can command $50,000 a month in rent in Delaware? Well, that's the kind of uh, that's kind of like the uh, Zelensky crypto scam. You know, it's where you have to figure out how to move money around and you need an excuse. Let's just say let's just throw a number out there. Let's say fifty thousand dollars was 10 percent of some money that they had taken in that needed to go to the big guy. Well, you couldn't just hand them this 10 percent. So you say, well, I got an idea. I'll claim that I'm paying you fifty thousand dollars a month rent that will constitute your 10 percent. And then we will all be even. So I I would suspect that when money crosses hands, especially in those amounts between uh, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden, particularly going up to the big guy, that maybe there's a bit more to that than just rent being paid on a property. Yeah, me too. You and me both. We've obviously got the same kind of minds. Uh, What's going to happen uh, about all these secret uh, documents? A lot of people are writing into the show saying nothing will happen. Uh, Joe Biden will get away with it scot-free. Do you believe that? Absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, when you look at what happened with Donald Trump and the documents, they made a big deal out of it, probably knowing, you know, my position on the on the Trump documents all along was there would you would never get 12 jurors to say, yes, I, I think that that's a uh, you know, that that's a crime that we have to convict Donald Trump for. I think they recognize that. Um, and now this is happening with Joe Biden. They're going to whitewash both of them. They're going to stick them together kind of and whitewash them in the media. And addition. Additionally, you have to wonder how tenuous Joe, Joe Biden's hold is on power, if he has any power at all, um, in the White House in light of what's going on in Ukraine. You know, yesterday we saw the first major um, anti-NATO, anti-Ukraine war uh, march in New York City, which was, you know, there were, there were a lot of people there. We've got a, some big ones coming up here in Washington, D.C. and around soon. So you have to think that you know, being just days away from January 20th, two years where, you know, from which Joe Biden was um, sworn in, that there are those around him maybe looking for ways to um, 
vacate his position far earlier than 2024. And maybe this is, you know, leverage that they can use to convince him that a, uh, a, you know, a resting home somewhere would be far better and more comfortable than the Rose Garden. Well, our our mutual friend Max Blumenthal uh, was making the point earlier in the show that the Democrats, uh, some of them are spooked by the apparent determination of Joe Biden to run again in 2024 and thus potentially still be the president uh, approaching 90 years old and not even a sprightly 90 years old. Um, But another part of the Democrats are spooked by the idea of of, uh, President Kamala Harris and they lack uh, any alternative. It's Biden or it's Harris. Uh, Which do you think will win out of those factions? Well, for for starters, uh, regarding the ultimate outcome, I don't think it could matter because I don't see how either of them at this point could um, could could win. Joe Biden certainly couldn't um, do very well in a debate right now. And his record speaks for itself, shall we say. Kamala Harris talks to everyone like she's talking to a, you know, an elementary school class, you know, boys and girls, the big countries attack the little countries. And we don't you know, she talks in such an infantile manner that it's pretty much, uh, you know, horrifying to the average voter, so I don't think she can win. The problem the Democrats have is this, and you know, people say they have nobody that could win. Well, they have a few people maybe floating around that could be um, you know, at least attractive and could, you know, speak well for themselves in a public setting. But anyone who would push back against the policies that the American people are unhappy with would not be allowed to run. So the only thing they can run is some iteration of Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, someone who's, you know, like Joe or um or, or Nancy Pelosi, who seemed to be somewhat out of it, or Kamala Harris, who is just going to, you know, voice what she's to, as best she can, what she's told to say. The Democratic Party has painted themselves into a corner, completely and totally allied with the um, national security state and corporations. So they they kind of put themselves in a hopeless position. Could Hillary make a comeback? Could the Obamas make a comeback? Well, you know, in theory, um, a a lot of people think that um, Michelle Obama may run. I just don't think she's a political kind of person. And the reality is they don't really know her ideology. And I'm going to say this. um, If you're a black person in America, this is going to cross your mind. If black people in America, I'm going to tell you right now, this is going to cross your mind. She is a black person of black former slave heritage. And from the perspective of most black people, you know, Barack Obama is of mixed race. Um, uh, um, uh, Kamala Harris is of mixed race. The idea that a black person who is of a black slave heritage would be allowed to be the president of the United States. Most black, I mean, mean, I'm just being honest with you. I don't know if it's true true or false, but most black people would say, no, she would not ever be allowed. A member of the quote, you know, peasant class, if you you look at it through the, through the um, lens of the ruling class in America, she wouldn't be allowed to be president. I don't see that happening. Now, uh, finally, Garland, uh, and I'm grateful for you joining us. Uh, Where lies the security apparatus now that they have been exposed so thoroughly in the Twitter files? It's true that these files are not on mainstream television and they're not on... Uh, the front pages of mainstream newspapers. But 
The entire political class has now read them. The entire journalistic class has now read them. And the exposure of the FBI and the CIA has been phenomenal. I mean, whatever it says about the former owners of Twitter, it says even more about the uh, FBI and the CIA. How can anyone entrust them with the power of life and death and law and order when they are exposed as such renegade operators? They're effectively rogue outfits. Yes, it's, they've been exposed, particularly the FBI, if we look at, you know, going after the Communist Party, calling people, com- everyone that they didn't like a communist in the 50s and 60s, going after any of the, the anti-war people in the, uh, in the 70s, the black liberation and, uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the 60s and 70s. What we found out is nothing's changed, that they're the same. But there's another, excuse me, there's another group that's been exposed, and that is the so-called oversight groups in Congress. This is clear. But what we've seen is not only does Congress not involve themselves in the oversight that they are accountable for constitutionally, but that they have been part of it, part and party of these actions with intent that, you know, uh, uh, um, Adam Schiff and others were sending names to the uh, uh, to the FBI. They were doing end arounds to the Constitution. So how can congressional oversight exist if Congress is part of the problem? Where is and as an organization I'll bring up again that I was a part of. I mean, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. When I left, here's the numbers. When I left the ACLU as a member of the board, they were bringing in $300 million a year. They had $950 million in their basically savings accounts. You got all that money. You've got all that power. This is absolutely what the American Civil Liberties Union is supposed to be all over. All over. Where's the ACLU? Where's congressional oversight? What we're seeing now is the organizations and the parts of um, Congress that are that are supposed to address this are quiet as a church mouse. And you have to ask yourself why. Lastly, I said lastly, but this is really lastly. Uh, this uh, Kevin McCarthy finally made it as the new, the new Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I thought for a minute Juan Guaido was going to pop up in the chair. They were having so many difficulties in, uh, in agreeing to McCarthy. But tell us, in a nutshell, what can we look forward to uh, with Kevin? Oh, we can. I mean, here's a guy walking around with his Ukraine flag on. You know, you, he is simply part of the machine. Um, they did the um, equivalent of the Minsk Accords with the MAGA people. They gave them an agreement that they never intend to keep. They're saying they're going to do certain things. They don't. They do not intend to keep any of the promises or any of the agreements that they made with the handful of Republicans who pushed back. So he's part of the problem, part of the machine. And again, I'm a lefty, a far lefty, so I certainly don't agree with the Republicans um, ideologically, but I do think that the Republican Party is healthier than the Democratic Party because at least they have a contingent um, that stands up for something, but they're going to get nothing. They got the Minsk Accords. That's what they get. Three or four years from now, Angela Merkel will be speaking for uh, Kevin McCarthy saying we never intended to cut any money out of the budget. (laughs) Brilliant. Brilliant. Pithy and brilliant. Thank you very much, Garland Nixon, as always, for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Well, I'm afraid uh, Klaus Schwab's goose is cooked. There'll be a lot of cooked gooses, actually, at Davos. 
I would have thought that would be on every menu. Is the WEF gathering at Davos A, good, 7%, B, evil, 93%. And on YouTube, it's 7% and 93%. But on Telegram, always the most perspicacious, it's, it's good, 4%, evil, 96%. And thousands and thousands of you, more well over 10,000 of you, have uh, voted in that poll. Bad news, Klaus, but I'm sure the cooked goose will be tasty enough. On the line is Jeff in Mansfield. Go ahead, Jeff. Oh, hello, George. Uh, as I remember, you were a leading light in the Brexit movement. <coughs> Proud of it. Proud of yeah, it. Yeah, and you made several barnstorming speeches about it. They were brilliant. I must admit, they were very good. You never mention it now. You seem to have washed your hands of it. Have you realised that Brexit's been a mistake? Wash my hands of it? It's already no, happened, it? mate. It's already happened. It's living <laughs> rent-free in your head. That's why you think I would mention it. Why would no, I why mention, mention something... If we were better off, if we were better off, you'd be yapping about it on your programme every week. No, you never not. I never said, I never said mouth, we'd be better off. You never mention it, do you? Well, listen, you know, if it's been a success, you'd uh, never Jeff, talk about it. Jeff, give me a word in edgeways on my own show. Uh, I never said we'd be better off. I said we could be better off if we had a government that made use of Brexit. And that's, of course, what we lacked. I put it in a more highfalutin way, Jeff. I said Brexit is a necessary but not sufficient condition to build the Britain we want and need. And we've done the necessary, but we cannot yet do the sufficient because we first of all had a government of pro-Brexit incompetence and now we've got a government that is trying to take us back into the EU. You mark my words, Rishi Sunak. Hold on, I'll let you. I'll let you in. I'll let you in. But hear me out. Rishi Sunak will do a deal over Ireland with the European Union as a sign of goodwill. And before you could say Jacques Robinson, we will be back aligned with the single market with all that that entails. Last word to you, Jeff. Well, you, you think we're better off now, do you? Better off out, are we? We're worse uh, off. I, we're worse off. We're, no, we're not worse off. We're what? not worse off. Are we worse off than the German economy? Country in Western Europe. We're worse off, George. Come on, admit it. Now, are tell we? The truth. Are tell we? the truth, George. Come on. Are we? Are we worse off than the... Are we worse off than the German economy? Are I'm, we worse I'm off? About you. I mean, I'm, I'm on about us. I don't care about them. I'm well, on about are, us. But the Germans, the Germans run off. the, the Germans run off. the EU. But unfortunately, it's eight fifty-eight. Tell you what, Jeff, make a date with me. Call me on Wednesday, not two minutes before the end of the show, and well, you and I, I will have you, a. I phoned you, you and I, up an hour ago. <coughs> I phoned you yeah. up an hour ago. All right, all right. Okay. But you've only come on the show in the last two minutes, Jeff. Make a date with me. On Wednesday at 9 p.m. for the midweek moats, and you and I will have a Barney on air on Brexit. Is that a deal? Is that a deal? Well, I'll be there. Can I make another point while you're on? No, you can't because the show's over, and I've got to squeeze in Joe in New Jersey. It'll be a quick call. 
but an important one. Joe, go ahead. Hey, uh, power to the people, and God bless Julian Assange. Hey, George, I want to bring to attention the most powerful weapon ever conceived by man, and that is the the, the weapon of mind control to to control one's one's mind to 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 manufacture one's mind to hate or who to like or what to believe or what not to believe and that george orwell um war of the worlds i come from new jersey i know what 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 that did to new jersey and uh, that was the beginning of, of of the realization of the power of media and uh we see the united states and nato it has used this weapon to its fullest extent at, at the current period. It's, it's, the, it's the, the most powerful weapon that could be being used against not only humanity, people all over the world, including the Palestinian people, including the people of the Middle East, the Syrian people, the, the Chinese people, the Russian people, the Japanese people, the uh, Mexican people, the people of South America. All these people we are programmed to hate. And we can see that. We, we are experiencing the most powerful weapon ever conceived by man as a last-ditch effort by the United States and what I call Nazi, NATO, well, the Well, that's why it's so powerful, uh, Joe, that that's why I'm in it. People say to me, can you not try and get back into Parliament and so on? And I say, for what? Uh, I would just be uh, a guy on his own in the British Parliament with 600 and... 49 uh, enemies and nobody reporting what I'm saying or doing here, working in the media now, as I'm doing uh, full-time, uh, I'm reaching millions and millions of people in a way that I simply would not be able to. Now, uh, no to NATO, no to war is going ahead on the 25th of February in central London. There's the lineup so far. Two former British ambassadors, Peter Ford and Craig Murray, two members of the European Parliament, uh, Claire Daly and Mick Wallace, two former members of the British Parliament, George Galloway and Chris Williamson, and two members of the American nobility, uh, so far as progressive causes are concerned, two of the American real royal family, the family that stands up for the people, husband and wife team, Max Blumenthal and Anya Parimpil. Get your tickets now, five pounds uh, to uh, go. We'll tell you where exactly near the time for obvious reasons, but it's in central London, on the 25th of February, Saturday. Make your transport arrangements now. And don't forget, I'll be in Sunderland on Tuesday, the 7th of February. Still some tickets left for that. There's the graphic, Sunderland on the 7th of February. Make sure you get your ticket now. Well, it's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. The show has absolutely flown by. Uh, a record audience, I'm told, certainly in recent times. Two great guests, some great calls, and not a bad monologue from yours, truly. If you agree, then come back on Wednesday at 9 p.m. UK time 
for the midweek mother of all talk shows. Good night. <laughs>